Our good friends at Johnny-O welcome you to this episode. Now, the iconic Johnny-O clothing brand logo of the surfer and his longboard first caught my eye several years ago, but it's the signature Johnny-O style where West Coast meets East Coast prep that truly changed the game for me, and I've been wearing Johnny-O ever since. And now our listeners can use promo code RICHTAKE at checkout for 20% off your first order at johnny-o.com. That's 20% off the regular price. Price at johnny-o.com. Use the promo code RICHTAKE at checkout for 20% off your first order. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted built and inspired by the role of sports in their lives here's your host this is episode 133 thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen the importance of being intentional in life is often understated But for Charles Warren, it's been his foundation that has helped him to be process-driven in all aspects of his life. Golf would become his passion, where he would win a South Carolina State High School Championship and the South Carolina Amateur, before he attended Clemson University, where he would also win the 1997 NCAA Individual Championship. As a pro, he would win three Web.com tournaments and played eight years on the PGA Tour. Charles was the first golfer to be inducted into Clemson's prestigious Ring of Honor, and in 2018, he was inducted into the South Carolina Golf Hall of Fame. Now serving as an area vice president for Arthur J. Gallagher, a risk management firm, he's still instrumental in fundraising efforts for the Clemson Golf Program, South Carolina Junior Golf, and the First Tee Program. Our conversation with Charles Warren. Charles, like this way or like way? Whatever you want to, man. <laughs> whatever is comfortable there with you, go. I know. Just make sure we're not we're, kicking we're, each other. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, Charles, thank you so much, man. I greatly appreciate you sitting down with me to yeah. talk a little bit about your journey. And we're obviously in some unprecedented times right now at the time of this recording with the mm-hmm. COVID-19. But uh, I greatly appreciate you letting me steal some of your time. And in this type of situation, in terms of things changing so fast. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know from your perspective, or I want to get your perspective, I should say, just in terms of even on the PGA Tour when you played, Mm -hmm. I mean, things changed and you had to adjust. What was that like? Say if there was a rain delay or, you know, a tournament gets called, how does that affect you? Yeah, I mean, you kind of know there's things you can control and things you can't control. And obviously this is a dynamic situation that seems like it changes hourly. So, I mean, when you look back at where we were four or five days ago, it was completely different than now. The only things that I can really compare this specific situation to would have been like when Payne Stewart passed away. I remember where I was when that happened and we had some delays. Uh, I think we delayed for a day because of his funeral there. And then obviously 9-11. I remember Jonathan Bird and I were rooming together at a residence in in Eugene, Oregon at the uh, Nike Buy.com event or whatever it was at the time. And it was, uh, you know, he was getting up to play the Pro-Am that morning and came into my room and told me what was happening. And, you know, similar to this, I mean, we were just kind of figuring that out on the fly. So at, at one point, I remember 
I think there was probably eight of us that lived on the East Coast that were figuring out a way to rent a van and just make, and it, drive make it all the way across the country because we didn't know, kind of like this, when the end was going to be or when we would play again. Um, obviously, I, I think, you know, we played the next week in Boise, Idaho, which was a little surreal. But, you know, there were just a lot of unknowns. And I think this is, you know, the same kind of situation. But, you know, from a from a golfer standpoint, there's, you know, there's just things you can't control like weather and things like this. The uniqueness to this is that just nobody knows what the end is going to be. So from a preparation standpoint, I don't really know what players are really doing. I mean, they know they've got off through Augusta, so that's, you know, kind of a three- or four-week break. And, and obviously the players that were really hot coming into the Players' Championship, um, that'll all kind of reset. And then, you know, whenever they do get to come back and play, it'll be it'll be kind of a kind of a new world. It definitely will. And so now how did you guys get back to the East Coast then? During well, so we ended up playing. So we got, so the tour took that week off. I think that was actually the week maybe of the Ryder Cup. Um, and then I think the tour, I don't know if there was an opposite field event, but as far as the Nike tour was concerned, we took the rest of that week off, just practiced and kind of hung out and just kind of figured out what we were going to do or how we would potentially get home. And then I think maybe on the weekend, the tour announced that we were planning on playing the next week. So we just proceeded and went, just went to going. the next week. And, and it was, you know, definitely, like I said, surreal playing after all that all that happened, which it'll be kind of the same way with this. I think that's right. And, and that was a crazy time. I was actually in Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. Uh, when the Pentagon was mm-hmm. hit that morning, uh, I was actually probably only a mile and a half or so away from the Pentagon. Wow. And obviously didn't know what was going on. I mean, it was just craziness and trying to get all the reports that were coming in. But mm-hmm. we were in uh, the bottom floor of a hotel, basically. So you really didn't know what was going on. But then when you went up to the street level, I mean, obviously all the sirens, you mm-hmm. know, just everything going crazy. And then it was, okay, now how do I get home? Right. So we had a group of us that we were trying to rent a car, mm-hmm. couldn't rent a car because everything was shut down. You couldn't get to the airport right. or any place. And then some of the rental places outside of the airport, they didn't have any cars. Sure. We rented a U-Haul, <laughs> a 28-foot U-Haul. You, you got to figure it out. And you should have seen as we threw our suitcases in the back of it. I mean, it was so cavernous, and you had three suitcases back there. And so we just took off, and I ended up, I got pulled over for speeding. No way. Yes, on the interstate. There was nobody on the interstate. I remember there were like six cop cars that came after me I bet. Uh, while I was driving because nobody knew. I mean, they see a U-Haul yeah. truck just mm-hmm. going 80 miles per hour down right. the highway. Yeah. So that was a comical experience, but it was, talking yeah. about surreal, surreal. Yep. Uh, I was like, man, this is just a whole new world. And I, I think it's to that same point, you know, I can only imagine just what it was playing. I mean, how to be focused when knowing there's still such uncertainty in the world at that time. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, anytime something like this happens, I mean, it's a, it's a perspective check. I think everybody puts things in perspective. I mean, last Friday, we were really hoping to have the Players' Championship to watch the rest of the weekend. And it was, I got to be honest with you, I don't, I'm not going to say I watch a ton of sports on television, but it has really been weird not having anything to watch or, you know, you flip it on the sports center and I mean, they don't, they don't have anything to talk about. At least it's so, sports is just something you at least have on in the background. That's exactly right. right. Rather you're engaged in it or not. It's, it's comforting to know that yeah. just something's in the background. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think, you know, the ripple effect of all this is not going to be known for months or even years after, but 
you know, when you look at the tour specifically, you know, I think about the caddies, I think about the sponsors, I think about the charities that are impacted each week by all these events. And I think Jay Monahan knocked it out of the park this week with the way he handled things. And I think you'll probably see sponsors for that period that they have to sit out, really step up and, and, and partner with the local communities and do some of the things that they were probably planning on doing as it was uh, if the event had gone on as planned. So I think, right. I think it'll, you know, there will be some positives and some silver linings to come out of this. It's just really difficult to see right now. It is. Well, and that's what's so hard. Everybody wants to be able to predict what's going to happen. And that's, you know, obviously what's dominating the airways, at least on sports talk radio. is that's like right. They're wanting to have this crystal ball in the what ifs, but you can't. Mm, that's I mean, right. It just seems to be uh, changing every single day. That's right. Now, you talked about that you might not watch a lot of sports necessarily right now. Hey, you're a busy guy. You're a dad. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So that is a hard... I'm a golf and a college a, football guy. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, so I with, love... Well, that's easy, right? Yeah, well, we're both Clemson grads, so right. we've been uh, very blessed over the past you know, decade mm-hmm. or so. But what about you just in terms of when did that love then of golf, football, whatever, when did that happen? What was your kind of first memories of growing up loving sports yeah you know i think when i was a kid i mean that was just and and i've got a 13 year old son and a 10 year old daughter and i think it's you know when i was a kid we were outside playing some sport until dark just about every night and you know i just think you're you're you know you're exposed to it that way and that's just kind of how i was raised and then i would say when i was probably 12 or 13 started to play golf a little more seriously and then got competitive I would say through my middle teen years I wasn't really a highly recruited high school player out of you know coming out of high school but you know so really got serious about it kind of towards the end of high school and then at Clemson I would say I, I really started to develop where that interest in actually doing it long term kind of kind of came about but ironically enough from a football standpoint I mean I my dad was a cheerleader at South Carolina I grew up in Columbia South Carolina all of my family went there and so That's game it, cognition. It, it, it was an interesting. Right? It was an interesting um, conversation to be had with the whole family when I decided <laughs> to play golf at Clemson. But you know, quite honestly, in that generation, if you had the chance to play golf at Clemson, loyalties aside, it's just kind of what you did. Now, why is that? You know, I just think you know, Larry, the the kind of the the reputation of Larry and the program he had built was was of such to where you know, if you had a chance as a junior golfer in South Carolina to be a part of that, it's just kind of. It's kind of what, you, what did. you did. It's kind of what you did, and I think you, you kind of saw that through um, the late '90s, early 2000s. You just had a lot of players that were just wanting to come play, and you know, it's you know, I'm definitely proud of what Larry and, and everybody's done there. For yeah. sure. Now, could you have played at South Carolina? Did they I could have played you? at South Carolina. So I was recruited by like Wofford and Furman and South Carolina and Clemson and maybe a few other schools on a very small basis, but. Um, like I said, I was I was I was not I was not one of the more highly recruited players coming out of high school. Yeah, but school. you had great success as a junior golfer and yeah, in high school. Yeah, but to be honest with you, when I came out was really the beginning of the AJGA and kind of when high school players and now it's at a whole nother level, which is a whole nother conversation about why kids are so much better now coming out of high school and college. But you know, I didn't really play any of those national events, so I really didn't have a barometer to compare myself to a lot of the kids in other parts of the country. So, you know, winning Southern Cross and the state tournament and all of those kinds of things were great. But, you know, at the end of the day, that was kind of the beginning of all these coaches having access to a comparative kind of way to look at all these players across the country or now all over the world. Yeah. So Um, what's so different than now, what you're talking about in terms of being able to compare yourself to national golfers? So I think, you know, 
you, you can fact check me on this one, but the, the number that I've heard is that it, in the last 15 years to 20 years, the average age of a PGA Tour player has dropped like seven to eight years. Now think about that. That's a seven st- to eight years. That's a statistical aberration over all of time for something to move that quick. And, you know, what I think it's the tiger factor. So the kids that were influenced and got involved with the game because they looked up to tiger and they started working out at an earlier age, they started working with sports psychologists. They started working with instructors. These kids were doing all of the things at that age at 12, 13 and 14 that we didn't do until we were four years out of college. So I think you're seeing, you know, technology is a big part of that too. I mean, TrackMan and all these things. These yes. kids have they have access to and even in, the clubs themselves. They have instant access to data that tells them yes or no. Um, there's arguments for that being good and some arguments for that being bad. But when it's all said and done, I think that's the biggest factor. Is these kids are just doing all the things that we didn't do till we were on tour. I mean, you look at my generation and just the one before me, and you got guys like. DeMarco and Toms and Duvall and, you know, Stuart Sink, all those guys won on the Nike Tour before they ever thought about thinking they could win on the PGA Tour. You know, you had a Phil and a Tiger that were true aberrations to the generation, but if you look at it, you know, now these kids are coming out of even high school thinking they can win on tour. And that's just, it's mind-boggling to look at where I was at that age. And is that unrealistic for them to think that they could win on tour? No, because they're doing it. I mean, they're doing it. Jordan Spieth's doing it. Rom's doing it. These kids are winning. Justin Thomas, I mean, somebody was, you know, these kids are, they're 24, 5, and 6 years old, and they've won, you know, a half a dozen times on tour. It's just, it's really kind of crazy what's going on. It's great for the game. I think it's, you know, it's great for the next generation. It's going to be great for, you know, kind of sustainability of the product because at the end of the day, Tiger's not going to be competitive forever. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's, everybody's loving how this is all playing out with Tiger becoming competitive again and getting healthy and doing the things he's doing. Then you got a bunch of these young guys that are, you know, putting their name in the hat as well. So it's a fun time to watch golf. Hopefully we get to do it again soon. I know. Well, that's, I mean, golf seems to be on a trajectory uh, just in terms of viewership and just excitement because of some of the things that obviously you talked about with Tiger. I mean, I know that's, that's a big part of it, but there's a whole other generation that you're describing that is yeah. good yeah. and really good and being able to draw some yep. some people in. Now, you mentioned that you, you felt there was good and bad with some of the technology. What, what's some of the bad? So I think, well, I don't think it's any surprise. So I think the good is that, you know, you can quantify so many things. You can quantify spin rate. You can quantify um, launch angles. You can quantify your putting stroke. I mean, there's all these different kind of litmus test tools that it's either yay or nay at some point the the fact that it's a sport and you're out there competing as an athlete gets lost sometimes and i think you know bryson dechambeau's at one end of the spectrum and then you got a guy like bubba watson that's at the other end of the spectrum so you know i think that kids have to at some point take all that data process it but when they go out there on the golf course to compete just go show off yeah just go do what you, you do. still got to perform the the, the 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 work has been done you know, I just think the whole paralysis by analysis. Thing I was about is, to say the same thing. It, it, it has it, to be a factor at times. It is. And I think, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, these coaches do, the really good coaches, I think they identify that. And what they do is they filter all of that information for these kids, for these players, so that they can basically, you know, you know, summarize it down to something that's manageable. 
so that when it's all said and done, it's like, all right, you know, we've worked for a couple of days. You're heading to a tournament tomorrow. You're buttoned up. You're ready to go. You know, these are your one or two small things that you're going to focus on while you're playing the tournament. Then when you come back, we can digest the rest of it. You know, and I, you know, I'll plead that I'm as guilty as any of that because, you know, you start looking at all this and start comparing your numbers and comparing these things. And, you know, it's easy to get lost in that. So I think that's what these, the good younger players are doing, like Ricky and Justin and, you know, all, all the rest of these kids, they really do a good job of just going out there. And when they're on the golf course, they're just showing off. They're just showing off their athletic skills and they're not thinking about all these numbers and things. Well, and I, I think you're spot on just in terms of also the athleticism. I mean, we've seen guys now bigger, faster, stronger, and we're in the same generation. I've, I've yep. got you by a few years, but yep. even just looking at, uh, I'm a big basketball guy mm-hmm. and watching the slam dunk competition now, mm-hmm. and I'm a big Michael Jordan guy. I mean, yep. I, I still think he's the goat. Sure. And just watching the slam dunk competitions back in the mm-hmm. late 80s and mm-hmm. early 90s, at that time, those dunks, those were impressive. Right. But now, they're pedestrian compared to what these guys are doing in the NBA now with the, the slam dunk contest. I mean, it's just amazing. It really is. And I mean, I just talked about golf. If you started expanding this and extrapolating the impact of technology on all of sports, I mean, it's mind-boggling. It, it really is. is. I mean, you look at, I guarantee if you go look at the combine numbers for the NFL, and if you look at, you know, pitch speed, if you look at all of these types of metrics, I mean, Players are becoming more athletic and they're pushing themselves. I mean, go look at an NFL game from the 70s or 80s. They don't look like these guys do. No. It's just a different world. And I think, (laughs) you know, fitness is another thing that's been highly, highly impacted by the ability to, you know, 3D kind of analyze bodies and motion and speed and all those things and sequencing TPI, Titleist TPI. That was really my first introduction to it um, out in Carlsbad. I mean, they they had the first kind of golf platform to where – they could hook you up to all these sensors and monitors and basically break you down like literally one motion at a time. Um, and, and that was kind of, that's kind of the world that we live in now. I think all athletes are looking for an edge because, you know, the whole analogy of like a race car going 190 to 190.1 is, is all the difference in the world in sports. I mean, it's just it does fine, make a difference. fine tuning. Um, so it's a, it's, it's interesting to watch it develop, but you know, the, the stat of how much younger PGA Tour players are now, is, is, it's, it's amazing. I didn't realize that. Yep. that that's, that is definitely significant. Now, how much did you have to fine-tune your swing or versus <laughs> just a natural swing that's just God gave you that talent to yeah. swing a golf club? I, you know, I would say my ball striking was never something that – there were times where I tried to overhaul it where it needed no overhauling. <laughs> but, you know, my short game was really the focus for me. So that was really – you know, chipping, putting, uh, bunker game, those were the places that I really, when I was playing out there and working on it, those were the things that I tried to focus on. I'm not going to say that I probably did hit more balls than I probably should have, but, you know, my ball striking was always good enough to compete, but short game was definitely the focus of kind of where I wanted to make progress. And, you know, I'm not going to say I wasn't uh, that I was an awful putter. You can't really play out there for yeah, a you have of to be good without being to a certain degree. But you know, I would say that that you know nowadays, if you look at these statistics, there are very few to no players in the top fifty in the world that are average have an average short game and great ball strikers. But there's quite a few of conversely the opposite guys that are that hit it okay that their short games really just carry them. It's just. You know, the game has gotten to where, and stats, you hear all these stats now that driving stats are much more important than they used to be. 
I'm not so sure that's true. I don't, I don't think you can hit it good enough to score enough, good enough to be competitive at really any level. What were you averaging drive-wise? I don't even remember. It's been so long since I've looked at it. But I was, you know, total driving was my stat. I, 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 I laugh at myself. I think I'm the only player in the history of the PGA Tour to lead the tour in total driving and ball striking and lose my job, <laughs> which, is, which is pretty crazy. But I was always in the top two or three in total driving, top 15 in distance and ball striking. My greens and reg was always, I don't know, top 10 or 15. But, you know, like I said, those those two stats don't add up to the only stat that matters, which, right. is, which is the dollar The W's, sign. right? That's right. <laughs> yes, to get those dollar signs. That's right. Okay, I got to go back, though. In your childhood, your dad obviously is a huge Gamecock fan, mm-hmm. and you're telling your family you're going to Clemson. Yep. But now, were you going to Gamecock Games as a kid, I mean, was yes. it? So I, I mean, went. I, yeah, I've probably still been to as many games in Williams Bryce as I have at, at Clemson. Probably, maybe not quite. I've probably passed that, but it was, um, you know, it was one of those things. I remember going through the process. I don't really remember how it played out, but I didn't make the decision to go to Clemson until June, the beginning of June, before I went. I mean, now these kids are committing when they're sophomores in high school. But I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I, you know, I think it was kind of down to Furman, Wofford, and Clemson were kind of the options. You know, I would say the decision to get out of Columbia was really more predicated on just getting out of where I grew up. Yeah, going, just wanted to do going, something different. Going to college. But, yeah. you know, my parents were super supportive of whatever I did, and I think that was, you know, that was the, that was the theme of the process is no matter where I decided it was going to be, you know, it was going to be one of those things to where they were going to support it. And, you know, they obviously did, and it, it obviously worked out, so. Yeah, so there wasn't any contention no, in the household? None, none. <laughs> none at all. Well, you're getting a golf scholarship, right? That's right. So, none at all. And what was it like then when you get to Clemson in, in terms of the transition? You mentioned that you weren't necessarily yeah. highly recruited, but did you see a big difference in level of competition once yeah. you got to Clemson? Yes, I did. It was overwhelming, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, I In think, what way? So, you know, I, I go in... You know, so we had an apartment my freshman year, and I go in and I'm staying. I'm rooming with uh, a kid from Ireland that just had a that just came off a redshirt year that was obviously going to play on the team and two AJGA Junior All Americans. So obviously, I didn't have the pedigree. I came in kind of needing to prove myself. Um, I redshirted my first year, and I think that was the best thing that I could have done. Obviously, school, balancing school and athletics your first year is just extraordinarily difficult, and it's one of those things that if you're not prepared for it. And you try to go play. I just don't think you could possibly have the time to do it with travel. So, I redshirted my first year, and you know, kind of came into my second year um, wanting to prove myself. And you know, I would say I had an okay freshman year. I played a little bit. You know, maybe had a couple of top twenties. And then my sophomore year, I would say in the fall is kind of when I started to click and started to really progress. And you know, I, I think that I really can't pinpoint exactly what that was, other than actually. You know, yeah, I was going to say, what was there a defining moment that, all right, if it, you look back on it, and you I have just to, get it now. And you have to kind of put something as kind of the, the turning point. Uh, I went to, I think it was probably the second or third tournament in the fall. We went to Houston to the um, tournament at the Woodlands. And I literally, in the practice round, I couldn't make it from here. No joke. I mean, it was like, it was bad. I was in a, <laughs> I was in a panic. And that was at the time to where, of all these putting styles and things that have kind of progressed since then, that was kind of the beginning of the cross-handed movement. And Larry and I were on the putting green. I remember it was just the two of us that night. And he's like, why, why don't you try cross-handed? And I went to cross-handed and it just kind of felt natural. And, and it I, just fit. And, and I played okay that week and, you know, had a, had a good spring. And then obviously my last two years 
played really well. But I think if you were to look back on it, I think that would be the turning point. So, Because that just gave you some confidence overall? And sometimes it's just you need to do something different just to kind of mix it up. And that's kind of the phase that I was at with that. It was that bad. Yeah. How are you guys getting selected to which tournaments you're playing? I mean, what's that process <laughs> like in, at well, Clemson? We, well, we laughed that Larry used to use the point system. And the way right, the point system that? worked was you, you, and you are going. <laughs> but, you know, in, in, all, in all, you know, honesty, I think that, you know, Larry had a good handle on it. Some teams, we would qualify for a spot or two, and then he would pick three guys. But, you know, it was kind of week to week, depending on, I mean, if you were coming out of the summer or off the winter break, when everybody was kind of like I was talking about with these guys these days, kind of resetting, then you might have three or four qualifying spots. But, you know, I'd say the guys that were always one and two and three even were always kind of guaranteed to travel. But, you know, he always kept it open to the rest of the team from a competitive standpoint to work your way in, um, which was the phase that I was at, I would say, you know, up until my even my junior year. What was the home course? We played at, so the, they built the Walker course when I was there. We played at Boscobel a bunch. We played at Cross Creek a bunch. And then when they built the Walker course, obviously we were out there a good bit. Yeah, but now as the Walker course, does it host tournaments? No, they, they, they don't. Well, um, why is that? Yeah, so, you know, I think there's a variety of factors. A lot goes into that. And I think that, you know, so they, they host a tournament at the Cliffs and at the Reserve now. So they have a kind of a, a I think it's a week before and week after where they have um, a girl, the, the girls host a tournament and the, and the guys host a tournament. Um, but, you know, I just think that I think that you've got to, you know, these days the golf course has got to be such a challenge to be competitive because these kids, like I said, are just so good. So they've they've picked a couple golf courses on the lake there that are close by and they can obviously engage and incorporate Clemson uh, with some of the events that surround the tournaments. But, you know, I think that's so the Walker the, course is just not challenging I, enough. I think, the way if, it's I set think up. if college kids went out there, they would shoot nothing. I think they would destroy it um, just because it's it wasn't built for that. It was built for it was built to be a community public golf course that the whole community and the universe, the student body could enjoy. And I think that was the goal. And, you know, I think that's the purpose that it serves. So I don't I don't think I think you I think they would struggle to make it difficult enough for, for a championship event like that. So what makes a golf course difficult? Because I hear this quite a bit in, yeah. in terms of, you know, yeah. obviously, yeah, you know, I mean, the different courses around the world. What makes it well difficult? You ask a bunch of experts that, and they're going to give you a bunch of different answers. My opinion is that obviously narrowing the fairways, thickening the rough, making the greens firmer and faster—all of those things make the golf course more difficult. But at the end of the day, you got to have a design that leads itself to, you know, kind of making one or two of those things kind of the influencing factors that still keep and incorporate the kind of the traits and characteristics of that golf course. There's just golf courses. You just can't go in and do all four of those things and expect it to play right. Um, which is a lot what you're seeing with a lot of these professional tournaments is they try to reverse engineer a score and that just doesn't, it doesn't work out. So I think that if you were to take any, like take, Chanticleer or some of the other golf courses around here that Chanticleer is a good example. So, you know, they've had two or three state AMs there. And when they get the greens firm and fast with a little bit of rough, I think it plays well and it's under 7,000 yards. And, you know, I think Bill Haas shot eight under when he won the state AM out there. So, you know, there's, there's golf courses that, that can handle one or two of those things. And then there's ones that can handle all of them. You know, I just don't think, I think the Walker course specifically, you'd struggle to to keep the playability of the golf course with 
greatly narrowing the fairways and the, and, and growing the rough up. And the, yeah, well, no, they don't need to do that because no. I love the Walker course. You so want for to see me, that. You'd be <laughs> I miserable. promise you, you'd be miserable. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yeah, and no I don't need to be play. miserable with That's golf. Right. I'm not that good. I think the game on a whole is going more towards being faster, being more casual, being more fun, being more playable. I just don't think for 98% of the golfing population that it serves a whole lot of purpose to do any of those things. That's right. No, I'll um, leave that to, up to the pros. That's right. You know, you, right. you can handle that. Just give me my fun that's experience right. out there because that's, I don't get to play enough either. Right. That's the other side of it. Yep. How often were you playing? I mean, were you playing every single day as a student or even, you know, on tour? I mean, did, how much break time did you have? I mean, you're doing, it's, it's kind of, it's different now because they have the wraparound schedule, but you know, with, so in college you'd play four tournaments in the fall and seven tournaments in the spring. So you'd basically have off December and January, basically. Yeah. But were you hitting every day? I mean, were you going out there and practicing? I mean, you're doing something. I mean, there were times where you take breaks. I mean, in December and January when the weather's bad, you kind of got to get away from it. But I mean, you're always doing something. I mean, it's a big part of your college experience as an athlete is, you know, everything you do, whether it's, you know, hitting balls or playing or whatever, we're always we're doing something for sure. What was that like, though, to win the NCAA championship? Yeah, I mean, I, I, that, that, now that my golf career is behind me, I, I, that's definitely... Yeah, have you been able to like really reflect yeah, I mean, on that? Yeah, that's the defining moment. I mean, that's obviously the thing that, 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 that I identify and people identify myself with, is, and I, I'm definitely proud of that. I mean, that was... You know, at the time I had had a good year that year and, and going into NCAAs, I liked the golf course. I mean, I, I, nothing happened prior in that week or in the weeks preceding that would have really led me to believe that that was a reality. But um, but it was it was a fun week. And, and so you didn't have this like extra confidence mm-hmm. boost going in. Mm-hmm. I would say the final round I did. Things just happened the final round. I was making a lot of putts and it was obvious to me that 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 things were going and were going to go really well that day. You know, it was a windy day, and I just played well. And and at the end of it, had a lot of good breaks and things that happened to go my way. And I still, Jason Gore still holds it over my head that he doubled the last hole to miss the playoff <laughs> and put Brad and Brad Elder and I into a playoff. So he thinks he would have beat you if he makes the oh yeah. So the playoff, you know, right? anyway, we're, it, it's all water <laughs> under the bridge, but it, it's all fun banner when we see each other. And then, um, but yeah, it, it was how it much was, were nerves affecting you during that when you're when you're that close when you feel yeah. that I'm really in contention here yeah I don't especially really, in the playoff hole yeah the playoff hole definitely there were some nerves uh, but I, I just think you know <laughs> I think when you're in the situation you're controlling it and I think that's one of the things that you know I think as an athlete the nervous times are the night before or the other times when you're leading up to it like the most nervous you are is you know, I remember when I won the, my first pro event at the BMW here, the night before is the worst part. I was leading by like three or four or five shots, and that's the worst part. When you get to the golf course and you're actually in the moment, it's what you do. Because you feel natural. I mean, you, it's want, your environment. you want the ball. You're in the environment. You're just reacting to whatever the situation presents you. So, you know, I, I don't, you know, were you nervous? Was I more nervous than I was in the third round? Sure. But I, I don't think it really, you know, you, you got to love the situation and, at the time, it was great. I mean, you look back on it and wonder how, as a junior in college, you got it done. But <laughs> somehow, somehow I did. So it was good. And then, you know, obviously my senior year was a lot of fun as well. Um, but what was your typical routine just for any tournament? I mean, you have a certain 
this is what I do every single time? Or, you know, did you have any well, type of superstitions or anything? Well, it's actually an interesting question because in college, it's dictated upon what Larry told us to do. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a team <laughs> thing. You know, first tee time, I mean, we basically dictate, Yeah, which is different. Which is totally different. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, it's not to be shied away from conversation when you get out of college because now, you know, you go from having a coach and four teammates that usually in most situations, you're all buddies and you're all pulling for each other and you're, you know, all helping each other and helping with, you know, yeah, take, you a, look at, take a look at my swing somebody. and tell me what you think kind of thing. And then you go and now you, you got a caddy and that's about the only person you got on your team that unless you engage in sports psychologist or instructor. So, you know, then all of your time you go from having school and all of the other kind of requirements of you as a student athlete to now your entire day in life is dedicated to being a successful athlete. And it's an interesting transition, to be really honest, um, which is another factor why I think these younger kids are more competitive because they even are doing those things before they get to college. Um, but then you've got to basically manage your day, manage your travel, manage your prep, manage how you invest your money into yourself. Um, but, you know, I would say, so if you were to ask me what my average day is in college and after college, it'd be, be completely two different. totally different things. Um, but, you know, I think that, that we practiced and, you know, I think we had a good fraternity of guys once we got out of Clemson that, you know, on tour, guys to play practice rounds with and kind of at least kind of transition kind of somewhat similarly to college. But, you know, it's, it's a totally different world when you got 24 hours to dedicate to doing what you need to do. Yeah, so were you, when you're on tour, either the Nike or PGA Tour or the Nike at the time. Yep. Uh, when, Corn Ferry now. Yeah, yep. Corn Ferry now. Were you having to take care of all of that? I mean, yeah. all your travel, you're yeah. doing that yeah. hotel, everything. Yeah, it's, you know, you've got an agent. My agent helped me kind of organize all that. Um, but, you know, from, you know, I'll never forget that I was playing. So I get my PGA Tour card and I'm playing the Sony Open, which was obviously five hours behind the East Coast. And my accountant called me and I'm playing my first tour event as a member ever. And my accountant calls me and tells me my quarterly taxes are due in like two days. <laughs> And I was like, whoa, what? what's going on? So, you know, things like that, 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 you know, you need people to kind of keep you in line. But, you know, there's just a variety of things that you just don't think about, you know, as a college kid coming out playing golf that you're going to have to deal with. But, you know, you've got an agent. PGA Tour Travel has a travel agency that was really good about, you know, if you missed a cut, helping you change flights and whatnot. But, you know, it was, yeah, you're, you're doing all that on your own. You're an in independent contractor and, you know, it, it, it's it's a... You know, it's you're running a business, and I think that's what you know. I think a lot of these kids yeah, once Charles again are Warren doing incorporated. You're, right? running a, you're running a business, and and, and I think that's it, it, that's definitely a learning transition. Yeah, and once you get your card or either either tour, mm -hmm. are you able? I mean, you're selecting which tournaments you want to play in. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, I mean, unless when you're young, you're going to play anything they'll let you in. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can't. You know, I, I, I would always say that. Five or six weeks was about the max that I was comfortable really pressing, playing in a row. And, I mean, that's, that was a lot. But, you know, you, you've got to make those decisions, and those are things you just got to learn what you're capable of. You know, what what your body and mind, mind honestly, the mind part of it is the primary, primary piece. When you're a young kid out of college, physically, you can go out there and walk 18 holes, you know, five, six days a week for yeah, six no or seven problem. weeks in a row. Mentally, though, you know, it's, it's draining, and you've got to find time to reset um, but you know, you're, you're, you've got to lay all that stuff out. I think, 
you know, at the beginning of the year, I think most of most of the players kind of lay out what their schedule is going to look like, knowing that if you're not fully exempt and you're not in all the majors and World Golf Championships and whatnot, that that's a fluid kind of schedule and things can change. But you know, it's all it's all factors that you have to work through. Well, I was fortunate to be able to play in the 2018 BMW Pro Am, mm-hmm. uh, that charity event, and. Mm-hmm. I could not believe on the final day, I was mentally toast. Yeah. Just completely toast. Yeah. Uh, just from their perspective, and to your point, not even so, it wasn't so much the walking, but it was just so much yeah. of, yeah. you know, that you're having to mentally prepare yeah. for each shot. That's right. And day after day, I mean, right. it's just, right. I, I couldn't believe how, I was like, I need to like sleep for a week. <laughs> Yeah, and the <laughs> not ra- even just from the physical and the ra- side. And the rounds in a tournament like that, I mean, they're six-hour rounds. Yes. So you're out there for a long time. And obviously, you're engaged. You're having conversations. It's not like you can just check out and sit on a bench and no, kind of no. park it for a little bit. And then for me, also, you know, I'm... You're on. I, I'm on, and you're I'm, on. I'm, I'm yeah. under the pressure of, yeah. like, I want to do well, and yeah. I'm not that good of a golfer anyway, <laughs> right. so it's even extra pressure. Yeah. I can't even imagine now you're having to compete for... Your livelihood. And honestly, the, the irony of it all is the weeks that you're playing well and you're in contention, it, I, I don't know that there's no way to ever measure this, but you expend so much energy in the weeks that you miss the cut by a shot and you're struggling and you're fighting it. I mean, those are the weeks where you really get tired. When you play good, it's like, that didn't. Oh, that was easy. Why don't I do that all the time? It was easy. <laughs> That's right. Um, so I think maximizing kind of that return on your time and your energy is is yet another thing to kind of factor in. but. It's um yeah it's a it, it can wear on you. Now were you a workout guy? I mean were no, you no, doing I, I, any I, of to that? To be honest with you, nobody started working out until I would say when we were in college and Tiger started to kind of Norman was the first guy to really get people thinking about actually making golf an athletic sport and working out and doing those things. And then Tiger obviously took it to a whole other level. But you know I would say until oh gosh if I look back at it I would say until four or five years out of college, so 2001, two or three. I mean, those were kind of the first times that you really, I mean, I'm talking about really working out. Um, Titleist, like I said, formed that kind of that TPI platform um, that has grown significantly that was kind of a good base for all of us to kind of go and say, all right, we're here. Let's try to at least get here. You know, Tiger's up here, but we need to at least work towards, you know, maximizing what, you know, we're physically capable of doing and I'm, I'm laughing at myself as I say that. So, but it's, um, you know, that was, a, it, it was always an evolving thing. How often do you now look though at, uh, talked about the technology and how it has changed. I'm talking just from the clubs yeah. themselves and balls. And do you think, man, if I would have had that technology, I, I'd, I'd still be playing. Well, imagine what Nicholas and those guys think. I know. I mean, I mean, you, you look at it, I mean, the, it, all of it is just kind of, is kind of crazy. And I don't, you know, obviously I don't, I play 10 times, 12 times a year, probably for the last seven or eight years. So I've kind of That's gotten all. away from it. Yeah. I don't, you know, I probably play, I'll play a couple of tournaments and I might play another 10 rounds, call it 10 to 15 rounds a year. You know, I'm just, you know, it's just not, it's just not, is it because it's not, well, it's not a, fo- you know, a focus, it's not a priority I, anymore. Business doesn't, you know, kind of dictate that I have a whole lot of free time to do that. But the other kind of factor is on the weekends. I mean, I'll take my son out and play some, but you know, for me to tell my wife, I'm going to go burn five hours on the golf course on the weekend. That's tough. Recreationally. <laughs> it's just kind of like, why would you do that? I mean, go, you know, I love to hunt and fish and do those things. So it makes a lot more sense for me to kind of 
kind of you carve that time out to do something like that. But, you know, I do, I do envision kind of getting more back into it. Um, I would say in the next few years, I, obviously like I was, Charlie's 13 years old. So as he starts, yeah, is he to play, picking it up? Yeah. So as he starts to play more, I'll definitely get more involved and hopefully my daughter, Riley yeah, I was gonna say, what about and, her? and you know, I think that, you know, I think there's an interest there, so I'm not, I don't push it. Yeah. I don't want to be that dad, but you know, from an equipment standpoint, you know, I, it's it's really kind of nuts what's going on. I mean, the equipment has gotten so good, and obviously there's a I lot. I say bring it on. There's a lot. I of, need more help. <laughs> well, see, you know, my thing is, is USGA obviously has got this whole focus on trying to figure out where technology and all these things are going. You know, my thing is, is personally, I would rather go watch Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka hit at 380 versus 300. I mean, it's just pretty simple. It to is. grow the game and make it more interesting, Why? who really cares if they shoot 40 under? I mean, it doesn't really. I think you got to keep it to where it's fresh and exciting. And yeah, you so know, why do you, I, I understand that the the delta kind of is going to eliminate a lot of players as the longer players get that much longer. But you know, I just I I don't think you need to do too much limiting. I think they do need to rein it in somewhat. Um, but it, it's it's it'll be very interesting to see what happens with yeah, all so that. Yeah. So why do you think there's a certain aspect of golf traditionalists that don't want to see guys hitting it? 380 yeah. or 400. Or, you know, I see a lot of the times, oh, gosh, the, this major, you can't have somebody finish 15 under at this major. Yeah, so, you know, I think that's the big thing. I think that's the big question is they see the scores and they see these things and they want to – it's more golf course related. I mean, the fact that these guys hit at 350 consistently, you know, and they're hitting less club into these greens, it's obviously just a numbers game from that point. But – you know, I think when you look at it as a whole, you know, Augusta is obviously the one consistent golf course through all the majors. So you look at Augusta and you look at some of these things. And the problem is they look at it and say, well, these guys are shooting 15 under and winning the Masters. Well, we don't want that to happen. Well, I understand that. But at the end of the day, I think it they need to reduce it more to the playability of the golf course. So, you know, they'll use examples like, well, Hogan used to hit four iron into this hole. Well, he hit four out into that hole, but you're not factoring in the agronomy advances that they've made. The greens were rolling six then. Now they're rolling 15. So the golf ball literally won't hardly stay on it won't the green. Stay. It was hitting a long iron right green. So you got to fact. There's, there's a lot of different factors, and the problem is, is they all try to boil it down to score. You know, what was the winning score? And we want to protect the golf course, which you know I agree there needs to be an aspect to that. Um, but they've done it. You know, Augusta gets everything pretty much right, and they've done a great job of kind of reining it in with basically basically the same golf course that they've had for a number of years. You know, when you start to look at some of these other golf courses and the rotations through the other courses with the majors, you start to see that, you know, there's golf courses like Marion and, and golf courses like that that are going to struggle to kind of keep up with this whole technology advancement. But once again, they did it last time. So it kind of goes back to that whole conversation about how do you make a golf course playable but yet more difficult. Yeah. And, you know, there's there, there's a lot of varying opinions on that. My thing is, is you know, let these guys be athletes and hit it a long way. I agree. And if you want to make the greens firmer or let the rough, you know, grow up a little bit, there's different ways to do it. But, you know, I think that you don't want to put a glass ceiling too much on it, but you probably need to start looking at you know, down the road, what does it look like? I just don't think you can bring it back, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't think so either. I know. I think the the tipping point has probably already occurred that That's right. fans want to see That's right. an aspect of these athletes being able to perform like that it, rather than have some type of governor on them to, you know, hold them back That's uh, right. from that standpoint. 
What was it like, though, on the tour and being married? And, you know, what would your wife think? I mean, because, again, yeah, this is yeah. a challenge of a lifestyle yeah. in itself if you're on the road quite a bit. It really is. I, yeah, that, that's, you know, I would say once you start having kids, it complicates it a little more. But my wife, we got married probably four years out of college. So she traveled quite a bit, actually, I would say from 2003 on. And then Charlie was born in 06. And he traveled for probably four years. But as soon as the kids start getting to grade school age, you know, it just becomes very complicated. Where yeah, somebody has to stay at home. Somebody's <laughs> got to stay at home. So you know, quite honestly, in 2012, when I decided to step away from it, I mean, my kids were what were they like six and three at the time? So you know, that was a factor. I mean, it was you know, I realized that these ten years were ten years that we really weren't going to get back if we spent. 30 weeks of the year on the road and I had a couple bad years and that was, you know, not the factor, but you know, that was one of the factors, but you know, it's, you know, one of the things that I miss is the travel. One of the things that I don't miss is the travel of course. I mean, I miss going to different places, but you know, packing up and moving and going through airports. I mean, it's just, it, it's a, it's a, I would say of all the, the non glamorous parts of being a PGA tour player, that would be definitely one of them. How was it making that decision to, Put your golf clubs up. Yeah, and not, not no easy. longer pursue. It, ne- it never is. Your card. And, you know, I've 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 probably done more reflection talking to other players that reach out to me about that transition through talking to them about it. But you know, I had you know my last year on the PGA Tour was 2010. I think I had partial status in 11, but I'd played better on the Web.com at that point or Corn Ferry Tour. So kind of dedicated. I said, you know what? Let's spend two years. Let's really rededicate ourselves to really practicing and doing the things that we need to do. And let's give it two years to see if we can get back out there. And, you know, at the end of 2012, I I had not played good that year and just really was not, I didn't enjoy the process. And everybody loves the What do you mean the the process? Everybody loves being on the stage and everybody loves competing. But, you know, the, the four days and the time that you spend on TV trying to win a golf tournament is a sliver, a little sliver of the process and, you know, practicing, you know, all the things that you got to do to prepare and build kind of incrementally build on each other to try to put yourself in a competitive, you know, situation is just, you know, I felt like I was beating my head against the wall. I was just practicing and working on my short game and doing all the things that I felt like and my instructors and all the people that were around me felt like I needed to do. And I just wasn't getting any type of progress or results. And, you know, I, at, at that age, at 38 years old, I said, look, if I'm going to have another career, this is a great time this to look at it. This is time to do it. I don't want to be 45, six, seven years old playing the Corn Ferry Tour, you know, beating my head against the wall for another seven years. And now my kids are going to college and, you know, I just didn't. Trying th- to figure out what you're going to do with yeah. the rest of your life. And quite honestly, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of younger players about this. It's an investment. You're investing in a business. I mean, every year that you do this, and and the problem is as a kid, you play golf, you play college golf. If you have a good college career, the assumption is you're going to play professional golf. And if you play professional golf, the assumption is you're going to retire from professional golf. There's a distinct difference between retiring and quitting. <laughs> if, there, if you retire, there's a press conference and there's no more working. Yes. So You didn't have a press conference? There's no press conference. <laughs> so at the end of the day, you look at it and you go, well, every year you're investing hundred grand, 150 grand into a business that, you know, you've got to go perform. And at some point you've got to answer to yourself as, you know, would I make this investment in another yeah, where's business the that was having the same results? And, you know, at that time I was, 
you know, I was really excited about it. To be quite honest with you, I probably didn't have a whole lot of conversation with my wife about it just because Why not? that puts her in a weird position. But, but if you go to her and you go, should I quit? And she says, yes, then she's kind of given up on you. And if she says no, like, you didn't believe in me. Yeah, you didn't believe, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a catch 22. And that's really got to be something that, you know, you internally say, this is the right thing to do. Yeah, which you is have the, to make that decision. Which at that age, it was the right thing to do. And it's yeah. proved to be absolutely the right decision. How are you giving advice then to some of the guys that are reaching out to you? Yeah. So, you know, we, I tell them when you know, you know, Kyle Thompson's a great example. So Kyle has come to work with us at Gallagher and, and has done great in his transition. But quite frankly, when he was on tour, you know, he reached out to me two or three times. And I just said, look, I'm not telling you what to do, but this is kind of how I went through the process mentally. And this is how I kind of targeted the transition. And, you know, I just said, basically, this is what I did. I'm not going to tell you that's what you should do. But, you know, the biggest question is, how do you know when it's time to walk away? And, and, you know, what I told him was, look, when it's time, you'll know. And and sometimes you kind of have to have a transition plan in place to kind of really say, all right, I'm comfortable putting that aside and going over here. But, you know, it's, it's a process. And, but, you know, you can talk to your wife about it. You can talk to people about it, but you've really, for you to take what you've you've done your whole life and walk away from it, you've got to be really comfortable with, you know, this is what I want to do. And that's not to say that, you might not do it, and a year later, change your mind. And, and, and did you have and, second and, and thoughts? That might be. I didn't. I really didn't. So you were comfortable, kind of at peace. I would or were say, you at peace? I, I, but you just knew you had a, I would say, another career. I would say when people ask me, "Do you miss it?" On a scale of one to a hundred, missing it, I would say I'm way closer to one. I, I miss the people. I miss seeing some of my friends. But as far as the process is concerned, I, I, I don't miss it at all. Um, so, you know, you, you do, there's, th- there's parts about it you miss. I do miss seeing different places and I miss the people. I don't, you know, people flip on the TV and they watch these guys trying to win major championships and do things. And I'm sitting here going, well, I beat that guy. I beat that guy. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I know what all of the things that go into them getting to that moment. And it is, it is, that moment is glamorous, but the rest of it can be very non-glamorous or unglamorous or whatever the term would be. Was there a morning then did you wake up and said that's it or what was what was the day that you said that's it i'm out i kind of knew i kind of knew and i remember the web.com tour championship at in jacksonville i missed the cut i birdied the last hole so i birdied my last hole in competition ever and it's a I fantastic way to finish i missed the cut by <laughs> i think a shot or two or something like that and then we had a long ride to the to the clubhouse and i was just like you know what i'm done that's it i'm done just so right it, was, it was either go to Q school, it was either go to Q school and try to get my card back at the time, which I think that was the last year you could actually get your tour card. And, you know, I was just like, I'm done. Drove home, talked to my agent for like three hours on the way home. I was like, what can I do? What should I do? And, you know, got to, you know, probably spent from Sawgrass to, I, you know, I-26 kind of talking it through. And, you know, everybody was a little bit confused because I really hadn't talked to anybody about it, but came home and told my wife and was like, look, I'm done. So I basically said, I'm going to spend six months talking to as many people as I can and figuring out, you know, I always love the, the, the business aspect of the tour. And I said, I'm going to talk to as many folks as I've, you know, been in contact with, and I'm going to just talk things through and see what's out there. And, and it worked out great. And the commercial insurance business has been, has been really good. And it's been a great transition. And 
Gallagher has just been an awesome platform for me to do what I was hoping I could do in 2012. Yeah, so it was an easy transition it for was, you yeah, then. It was. And so obviously there's this aspect of people, especially that make it to an elite level like you have in terms of being defined by mm -hmm. the sport that they play. Mm -hmm. I mean, so during that transition, though, did you have times of, you know, like, man, I'm a golfer, and now all of a sudden I'm not a golfer. I yeah. mean, so in, that, in terms of depression, and I'm not saying I don't want to be you know melodramatic. No, and, no, no. You know, I, throw I think, that out there. No, but. you're 100 percent spot on. I, I would say those times came kind of at the end of the c competing. I think you know I was really you know I was not. You, you you can't be in a good place to get to that decision, right? But I think once you make the decision and you commit to it, I think that it's almost kind of like a it's kind of a breath of fresh air, if you will. I think you kind of look at it daunting, yes. Unknowns, yes. But I think, you know, and this is what I told Kyle, you know, I think when you go through the process or any of these young guys, I tell them, look, go through your Rolodex, go through your phone and make a list of everybody you think would be worthwhile to have lunch with, go have a drink with, go have a cup of coffee with, and just talk to them. No agenda, just go talk to them. It serves two purposes. You go through the process of really understanding what people do, how they do it, what they do for a living, you know, quite honestly, how much they make, you know, so you can kind of get your arms wrapped around, this is what the world looks like. I mean, we lived in a very sheltered environment on tour to where you're around the uber wealthy guys and these pro-ams and things like that. And But you really don't know, you know, what are you doing? What does your business look like? So it serves that purpose. But the other thing it serves is you start to get the word out that, look, I'm serious about this transition. You know, I, I'm not having second thoughts and this is what I'm doing. And then people start to talk and then things kind of fall into place. If you decide to quit and just go hole up and sit in your room and pout about it, then no one's really going to know that you're A, really done, and B, you know, you're looking to seek an opportunity. So, you know, I think those, those, are, those are kind of how I, how I viewed it. But, you know, you got to, you know, make the decision. The great thing about golf was it's a week-to-week -week thing. You miss a cut, the next day's a new day, and you're looking towards the next week. I think the ability to kind of do that and compartmentalize successes and failures and learn from them helps a little bit in that transition, but obviously it's not, it's not easy. So you go, there's a lot of thoughts that go through your head, but you kind of got to just, you know, gear towards what's next. And, you know, golf is so process driven that you kind of got to view that the same way. Yeah. So how did sports uh, allow you to have that ability to, you know, uh, look at a failure, learn from it, or look at success and learn from it? How did sports, because I think it's a unique situation because you learn from sports, but it's the sports that, or the sport that you play 100%. that, you know, puts you in that position, no, you're you know, yeah. and it's a, and it's an ironic uh, situation of how they go hand in hand. Right. I mean, golf's a little unique because of the week to week basis of it, but obviously you're working towards a more annual, like long-term goal. But I think, you know, as an athlete, if you can't, I mean, you look at, I guarantee you Trevor Lawrence and all the guys after they lost to, to LSU. I mean, you would think that would be the end of the world that drove them to wake up the next day and want to go focus on the first game of the 2020 season. I think as an athlete, you, you have to do that. I mean, you, you can't, you can't really do anything at a high level unless you have the ability to do that and be process driven because there's things you can control and things you can't control. And, you know, I think it, I remember working with a sports psychologist and, you know, I said, well, you know, I need to do this and I need to do that. And he's like, you, you can't, and you can't control it. If you could control it, you win every week. 
Right. You know what I mean? Like if you could truly control it, you'd win every week. You and would. That'd be the end of the end of the conversation. How easy would that be? Yeah, but I think you know, as an athlete or you know, in anything, you've got to have the ability to compartmentalize that. I think sports is you know we look at it and we're trying to hire folks. Um, you know, we love former athletes because they have that ability. They know failure. You're going to fail. You know, you're you're anybody can handle success, but if you you know, the really uber successful people, they have, you look at the way they've handled failure. I mean, and that's, you know, that that's the keys to the whole thing. And they've handled it multiple times. That's they right. failed in multiple things. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think that's, you know, that's something that you've got to, you just got to have the ability to realize there's just things you can control and things you can't. And, you know, you can control the input and the process. And that's really what you have to do, whether you're playing golf or, you know, Doing something in business. That's right. Well, control the input. I mean, that's, that's I hear that all the time from Dabo yep. Sweeney. That's yep. what he talks yep. about quite a bit. Speaking of that, and you mentioned some of the Clemson football players. I mean, the last decade of Clemson football has just been at a level that obviously you and I, we never experienced nope. while we were students at Clemson. Nope. I mean, it's just remarkable how the past 10 years of what it has done for the university in itself. I mean, what's your viewpoint in looking at the past 10 years for yeah, Clemson football? I mean, I, I think the one word, there's one word, it's culture. I mean, really and truly, whether it's business, whether it's you're an athlete, whatever the case may be, really and truly, the one reason that we've been so successful, which has had a huge ripple effect across the university, is just Dabo's created culture. And, you know, he's created culture amongst us. He's created culture amongst his players, his donor base, people at the university, the athletic department. And I just think that's, you know, that is just, I mean, that's something that you can't put a number or you can't, it's just not tangible. Um, but it's real. It is real. And, and, it, and it is, you know, the kids he's been, you know, my son went to football camp a couple summers and down there and it's just you see the kids that he is creating and the kids that he's grooming while they're the some of the best student athletes in the world and what they're doing and how they're interacting with our kids it just makes you proud so yeah all the national champion two national championships all the things they've done acc championships those are great those are really great but i can tell you just you know having had some small contact with it. It just makes you really proud to be a Clemson football fan. It definitely does. And I never in a million years would have dreamed two national championships. I mean, let alone just one. That's right. You know, I mean, it's just That's amazing. Right. Now, were you at the national championship in Tampa? Did I you make it I to was, that trip? I was, I, was, I was at Tampa. Yeah, I was there and it was, I was in Phoenix too the year before and I went. I did I, make I, it to I, Phoenix. I made the decision to not take my family and we lost and I realized why that happened. <laughs> you need and, family. Because the next it's year, because the next year I had my son and wife with me and it was like, I told somebody, I said, I've never seen so many grown people crying in my life. <laughs> it was just like, it was cool. And then, then obviously been to some of the games that sent and was at LSU this year, which was a different story. But, you know, it, it, I think at the end but of the But just even getting there again. I mean, yeah. it's just remarkable. It's great. Just the yeah. level that it, Clemson football has been. It, it really is. And, and I think that, um, you know, I, I don't really think there's a whole lot of end in sight, to be honest with you. So I think that Dabo has created the building blocks of something that's very sustainable and you know, obviously, you've had good recruiting classes, so it'll be it's going to be fun to watch. Hopefully, hopefully, we can get through this this coronavirus deal and college football and will actually go as get planned. Because I don't, I don't know fall. if we I don't know if we can handle it in the fall. Yeah, the country right now. We'll see how the country reacts if there's right. no college football. 
Why has it been so important for you to give back to Clemson, though, especially there at the the golf program and the facilities? Yeah, I I appreciate the question and appreciate you saying that. I think at the end of the day, you know, we all of us kind of have this innate kind of sense that we just should always be in kind of give back and stay in touch with the team. And you asked about kind of that transition. I mean, we had a fraternity past Clemson. And so we would do a lot of these pro-ams and these things for other charities around the country. And I went to Lucas and Jonathan, I guess in 2001 or two, and said, why don't we do one of these for, you know, the Clemson program and South Carolina junior golf? Because those are two things that we all are very tangibly involved in the result of. Um, And so, you know, I just think that it's been fun. It's been fun having a fundraiser that we call it a gathering, Tiger Golf Gathering, to bring guys back and just stay engaged. And I think that's, you know, I just think that's what Dabo's doing it as well with his, you know, all-in foundation ball and some of the things that that one Clemson are doing. You know, they're keeping, you know, former student-athletes engaged because, you know, they're always part of the family. So I think that's, you know, culture and family would be the two words that I would say are the reasons that I always want to, give back and stay in, kind of stay in touch with the program and do what I can. Yeah. And how has Larry Penley been able to have, I mean, just the tenure that he's had? I mean, yeah. You're talking about, I mean, he's a fixture. Yeah, he I really. Mean, all he, the way back to recruiting you. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Larry, Larry, I mean, he was a dad for all of us, our four or five years, five years in my situation there. But, you know, I think that, you know, Larry, the, directly if you were to ask the question the reason that I think Larry is so good at what he does is his approach is unlike a lot of these other coaches that like we talked about with these junior players really kind of put everybody in a box whether it's technology or whatnot Larry kind of lets every player develop on their own kind of timeline and by by that I mean he's not going to force you to do x y or z but he's going to hold you accountable for your process so you know, everybody has instructors they work with. Everybody has different philosophies and way we, ways we play the game. I would say that, you know, my team, my senior year, Joey Maxson, Jonathan Bird, Lucas Glover, John Engler, and myself, we were five really different people. If you were to look at the Oklahoma State team, they were five really similar players. They recruited players that really kind of fit into a certain box, and both are were successful. But, you know, I think that's why Larry has really had the success that he has is, you know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't force you down a path, but he knows what each player needs to be successful and he's going to hold you accountable. I think it's remarkable just how long he's been there and just the the level that Clemson golf has. It's always been a national name from a perspective. I mean, mm-hmm. it's always been really good. So I, it's just amazing. I, I think there is a little bit of what you're talking about with uh, Coach Sweeney culture seems to be a little bit of a similar thing with uh, Coach Penley as well. Absolutely, yeah. I think I think I think he's he's done it, and I think he's created. I mean, uh, I, I think the cool thing is is the Clemson family is something that you're always a part of. I mean, it's one of those whether you go back and whether it's something at Clemson or something elsewhere, you go to a tournament. I mean, I felt like me and my family were always part of that family, and it's you know it's just it's I love getting everyone back together and hearing four or five different generations of Clemson golfers tell different stories and kind of talk about that. But you, you do see that common thread that everybody talks about Larry with a high level level of admiration and respect and appreciation. And I think that's, you know, that he's definitely the common thread that has kept that, kept that through and through since 1982, 1983. That's amazing. Yeah, it really is. What was it like when you see one of your, 
your brothers at Clemson, Lucas Glover, win a major. Really cool. Yeah, I mean, I, we were all very close when we played out there, and you know, I think that's one of the things that. You know, obviously, I wish it was me doing it, but, <laughs> but you see these guys win, and, and it just it's really cool, and we're all very supportive of each other. And, I mean, that was – I think that other players on tour really kind of identified the fact that what we had was a little different than everyone else. I mean, you'd see us playing practice rounds together. You'd see us staying together. Like I said, Jonathan and I were rooming together at the tournament during 9-11, and, you know, I think that that, that was – you know, we helped each other if we were playing bad. I mean, we would – go and look at each other's swings and give feedback because nobody's got more intel than someone that's played with you since college. So um, I think it, it was, it's cool. It's really, it's really neat. And, you know, I've, I've, I've enjoyed watching the next crop and the next crop of these guys come out and do what they're doing. And, you know, the, the fun thing is, is they're just all great kids. They're really, really good kids and people that you'd be wanting to represent the Clemson brand on tour. That just goes back to that whole culture thing. Yeah, it definitely does. What was your favorite course to play favorite course to play i mean best course or favorite course i'd say favorite places i like to go love to play charlotte love to play hilton head you know i would love to play pebble beach i mean those are all events the fbr the phoenix always seemed to play good in phoenix um which was a fun event to play well at with all those people but you know those, those are kind of the places that you obviously the home events and then and then uh, pebble beach is hard to beat so those would be I some know, of the it's ones. gonna be spectacular it really is, yeah. Pebble Beach is one of those places that, you know, you rarely ever take a camera. That's back before cell phone cameras were kind of the thing. But you always had a camera in your bag playing Pebble for sure. <laughs> was it true that there was a Tiger Woods effect on tour in terms of obviously crowds, but was there an aspect of people no doubt. just looking at, oh, my gosh, it's Tiger Woods? No doubt. No doubt. I mean, I think... You know, he created a buzz and a, and kind of a aura on tour that was unprecedented. I mean, really and truly. Um, but you know, everybody asked why was Tiger so good. Well, directly, his short game was better than everyone else's. But the the thing that Tiger really fed on is he knew he it was like a movie. It's like when you watch a movie and you know what happens at the end of the movie. You've seen it ten times, but you're still on the edge of your seat, or you're still like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? You know, it's one of the, that's kind of how Tiger viewed every week. It was like Thursday, he knows the ending to the movie. So he knows he's going to win, which was important, number one. You knew he was going to win, which was really important, number two. (laughs) But the most important thing was he knew that you knew he was going to win. So he knew that at some point all he had to do was kind of go through the process Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and if he was close on Sunday, you know, he had control of that situation, but he also knew he had control of your situation in a small Small aspect. And that makes a big difference. Yeah, I mean, you go look and you look back at the Bob Mays of the world and some of the guys that had a chance to beat him. And, you know, obviously they had a chance, whether it be a playoff or Rocco Mediate at the U.S. Open. But, you know, it's just in the back of your mind, you're like, have I seen this movie before? And I I never really did that head to head with him. So I really didn't. I can't speak from personal knowledge, but you felt it. I mean, it was real. Um, It was it was, you know, it's kind of like Jordan. Same kind of thing. Yeah, the I mean, Jordan it's like, effect. It's yeah. coming. You know, right. it's coming. It's just a matter of when it's coming. Um, but, you know, athletes like that are obviously once in a multi-generation. That's right. It was fun to be out there. I played the 2000 U.S. Open and when he did what he did, and I played played a few other majors when, you know, when he was kind of in contention and was up near the top, and it was a completely different vibe. Yeah. I mean, you could literally be – you could have your back to the putting green, and if he walked out, you obviously knew he was there. 
Wow. I mean, it was, it was a buzz. I would say the, the only two people that I've ever been around that really had that effect were Norman and, and Tiger. Oh, Norman great. had that a little Norman. bit too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's yep. interesting. I, I wouldn't expect that, but I, I guess at the time, I mean, he yeah, no, he he, he, had he an was aura there, about him. and I'm you know out, out of college, I was actually he brought me on as the first guy outside of himself to wear his clothing line on the PGA Tour my rookie year, and I had the opportunity to go down and play golf with him and do some stuff with him, and you know he he's he's a you know he had he has kind of that kind of that aura about him, and I think that was he was really the only guy that I could think of other than Tiger that really kind of had that kind of wow it factor yeah there's obviously some guys that do and uh you can to your point you can feel it yeah and you, it's hard to describe you can't i mean if you, know, you go if you go to a putting green or whenever we they, they start back playing if you go to a facility or a putting green where there's multiple players there you know you go sit there all day and you see what happens when tiger walks up i mean he's 44 years old and you know it's still there it's still it's there. still there and these young guys you got to understand all these young guys that are trying to beat him they grew up idolizing him so it's kind of you know, it's a it's a fun. I, I hope he's competitive for a long I do too, time because I love seeing greatness. Absolutely, I want to see Absolutely. the continuation of it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, wrapping up here, words of wisdom has always been a big thing for me, and yep. obviously, it sounds like you've been able to give yep. advice to guys. And what about for you? Any type of mottos, phrases, quotes, or just life advice that. Yeah, means a lot to you. I think my kids or anybody that I work with would they they're gonna they could answer for me without me even saying this. But you know, my two things are be intentional and be aware. I think whether you're 10 years old or you're 80 years old, whether you're in business, whether you play golf, whatever the case may be, be intentional about what you do, your actions, and the things that the things that you say, and and all of those things, and be aware of your surroundings. Be aware of who's in the room. Be aware of body language. Be aware of other people's feelings, be aware of who's sitting across the table, you know, be aware of, you know, all kinds of whatever factors you can take in, take them in and factor those into how you behave and react to things and act. And I just, I think being intentional and be aware. I think if, if, if people did that and especially kids, I mean, kids just, they got, it's almost a learned trait now that you've, as a kid, you've got to be aware of what's around you and be intentional about what you do and understand that there's consequences and, and reactions for all of your actions. So, you know, I would say and be intentional and be aware. Those are my two things. I really like that because I'm a big believer in being intentional and to the point where I do a one word, you know, for each year. Right. And a couple of years ago, it was intentional, mm-hmm. being intentional to do certain things. And obviously, from an aware perspective, I mean, there's so many distractions these days. That's right. You know, you definitely need to focus on that. You can get in your own little bubble and you get can. your own hole, and you can get lost in the in what's actually going on around you. And I think, look, in the world we're in right now, I think it's really key to be aware of what you know, what you're doing, and who you're around, and how many people you're around. And I, you know, it's just you start to extrapolate that out to everything in life, and it's like, yeah, I guess those are probably two things that would be we'd be well suited to hear right. about. Well, I know I'm aware that you're a better golfer than me, and now I'm even more jealous because of your beard. I, I cannot grow a beard. I love it. I know. It looks so good. Everybody asked about my gray, and I was like, "This is these are missed three-footers, not the insurance business. These have been long since planted. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's on its last leg. I think it'll be, I think it's, I think. I think you wear it very well. Well, thank you. Yes, I definitely it. do. Charles, thank you so much. Thanks for having me Greatly on. Greatly appreciate it.
Being intentional not only takes focus, but it takes work. And there's a grind mentality that you have to have. And it's pretty clear that Charles was able to use that type of focus out on the golf course, where focus is obviously so paramount. But maybe even more important is the ability to be aware. Now, not only of your surroundings, but also just the ability to be truly aware of yourself and knowing when to pivot in life, if and when you're not enjoying the process. Now, that finishes episode 133, and more of our conversations can be found wherever you listen to your podcast. And you can also watch some of our episodes by visiting our Rich Take on Sports YouTube channel. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.